Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Way back in 1995, that's when we finally woke up. Woke up to destruction in the wake of the largest act of homegrown terrorism in the history of the United States. The smoke, the flames the rubble and calamity of the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. But even after the investigation and the perpetrator's convictions, many were left unsatisfied with the simple narrative. Why would one man, and his friend and accomplice, fill a truck full of fertilizer and diesel and attack a government he hated, killing hundreds of innocent men, women, and children in the process? Some decided to look deeper, to examine the roots of these men's actions, And what these folks found? It was alarming. An illegitimate government had been fighting a clandestine war against a group of freedom fighters since the 1950s, and in recent years that government, through its sinister machinations and the blindness of the populace, had been winning. The assaults on Ruby Ridge, the conflagration at Waco, they were battles in an unending, pitiless assault against the small, ragtag group of informed patriots who were trying to organize, to fight, to take their country back. Some, the most dedicated of these, joined the militia movements of the 1990s. Others simply declared themselves truly independent citizens, answering to no authority, using their deep knowledge of the way the law really works, to reject the false identity that the government was foisting upon them, reclaiming their true destiny as sovereigns, masters of their own lives. They had the guts, the information, and the ideas that would soon remake the United States, bringing it back to the true vision the Founders intended. So join us, won't you, as we study how these freedom fighters, the sovereign citizen movement, built upon the legacy of the Posse Comitatus and other groups to create mayhem, confusion, disruption, murder, and a legion of delusional adherents headed for prison or the grave. Time to explore how we got from Oklahoma City in 1995 to a bunch of lunatics taking over an Oregon bird sanctuary in 2015. Gather your loved ones close. It's the Paranoid Strain. Welcome back to the Paranoid Strain. We've missed you. Why don't you call? Your father and I worry. I have yet to be replaced as your host, Fearful Jesuit. We're four episodes into our quest to explain why so very, very many people out there believe in every conspiracy theory they come across. We're describing those theories, figuring out where they come from, 
and uncovering the surprising ways that they connect with each other. Feel free to explore our back catalog, where you'll find an episode-long overview of the history and implications of conspiracist thinking, as well as an exploration of the fraudulent but influential screed, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, a favorite of both Hitler and whoever greenlights programming for Egyptian television. It's kind of a weird story. In our last episode, we kicked off a three-parter on the history of American conspiracist extremism, right-wing edition, with a history of the posse comitatus movement that emerged in the 1970s, took hold during the early 80s farm crisis in the Midwest, and led to numerous incidents, including a shootout in North Dakota. If you haven't yet, give it a listen, as we're about to start where that one left off, in the ruins of the Oklahoma City bombing. Today's episode starts with the militia movement of the 1990s. It influenced Tim McVeigh and Terry Nichols of OKC Attack fame, and its ideology built upon the paramilitary play-acting that posse adherents had started two decades before. After reviewing the farce of the 1995 congressional hearings on the militia movement, we'll explore the ways that the organized militias diffused into a more individualistic ideology of sovereign citizenship. After a greatest hits of sovereign stupidity, confusion, greed, and murder over the past couple of decades, we'll explore the twin phenomena of the Bundy Ranch standoff and the Oregon Bird Sanctuary takeover, evidence that the influence of these ideas is still spreading. Thanks, Obama. I mean, Internet. Thanks, Internet. Next month, come back for the series closer, a full exploration of the black-is-white, up-is-down, goddamned insanity of the sovereign citizens' theories of how the government, the taxation system, and the courts work. In addition to being the topic that inspired the creation of this series in the first place, it's the most wildly entertaining tapestry of interconnected crazy that this podcaster has ever encountered. But for now, let's explore the reasons that some people decided to form their own private armies during the Clinton administration. Ooh, ooh, I know. Is it because a Democrat was in the White House? I bet it's because a Democrat was in the White House. Okay, yes. Spoiler, it's because a Democrat was in the White House. But there's more to it. Those who have been with us from the beginning may be accustomed to our standard format, where the interview comes in about halfway through the show. This time, instead of presenting a standalone interview section, we're going through this history chronologically, liberally interspersing my musings with relevant insights from this month's featured guest, the Southern Poverty Law Center, or SPLC's, senior fellow Mark Potok. He's an expert on extremism and has even agreed to play along with our silly little game of assigning everyone a pseudonym for each episode. Mr. Potuck's pseudonym? Militia Watcher. Yes, he kind of phoned it in. But to be fair, the pseudonym thing we insist on is stupid and his interview is totally rad. In our last episode, we described how the Posse Comitatus Movement, a decidedly racist and anti-Semitic right-wing group of armed extremists, inspired conspiratorial thinking in catastrophic confrontations between law enforcement and adherents in the 1980s. It, along with similarly militant races like the Order, led directly to the armed Patriot, or militia, movements that were so much in the news in the 1990s. This movement reached its violent apotheosis when Timothy McVeigh and his Patriot militia sympathizing friend loaded up a U-Haul truck with fertilizer and killed 168 people in the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City on April 19th. 1995. Lest you suspect that McVeigh and Nichols chose that day at random, 
It was the two-year anniversary of the fiery end of the Waco standoff in 1993. Our guest, Militia Watcher, explains how the Oklahoma City bombing marked a stark turning point for militant, conspiracy-minded extremists in terms of their purpose and tactics. I think that Oklahoma City was a a Rubicon of sorts. I think that Oklahoma City marked in a very dramatic way, although it had been a pattern that had been developing since the uh, 80s and even the late 70s, into something that showed that the movement had become genuinely revolutionary. You know, if one thinks of the radical right, for instance, back uh, in the civil rights era between about 1954 and 1968, the Klan at that time was very much uh, about restoring what they imagined to be the good old days. They were restorationists. They wanted to bring back the era when sort of men were men and women uh, knew their place and gays were in the closet and black people didn't have many rights, that kind of thing. By the time we get to Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols, we're looking at people who are willing to essentially indiscriminately slaughter uh, an enormous number of people with very uh, little connection to their alleged targets in order to draw attention. And, and this, to me, really speaks to the extremely revolutionary uh, nature of the movement. It's really quite different today. You know, I think there is no question at all that McVeigh knew about the child care center, knew that he would Uh, be responsible for the deaths of quite a lot of very small children, and also understood that an enormous number of people uh, in that building were merely Social Security recipients going in to do their business. But that was all irrelevant to McVeigh. These were simply people who were, as he said, collateral damage, quote unquote, in his struggle for what he saw as freedom. Uh, look, the, you know, the Oklahoma City bombing was essentially a lone wolf attack. It's uh, true that uh, Terry Nichols was also involved, uh, and also Michael Fortier and his wife, Lori Fortier, to a small extent. But fundamentally, this was uh, Tim McVeigh operating on his own without a group behind him. So, yes, I do think that McVeigh perhaps is a, a real marker of the road that we've seen from collective kinds of terrorist attacks to the so-called lone wolf. Today, uh, if you look at the kinds of terror attacks we've been experiencing since Barack Obama came into office, uh, you will find that an enormous amount, uh, by our count, 74% of those attacks, and that includes jihadist attacks in this country, have been carried out by single individuals, lone wolves. Uh, If you look at attacks in which there were a couple of people involved, and typically we're talking about a father and son, uh, a man and his wife or girlfriend, uh, those kinds of pairs, we get to about 90% of all the cases. So, yes, I I think terrorism and the way that it is carried out today is uh, very much a lone wolf affair. And I do think it's fair to say that the sovereign citizens movement dovetails with that quite nicely. You know, when you think overall about the form uh, and shape of the sovereign citizens movement today, although there are a few organizations, uh, it is really not in any sense a group dominated movement. These are individuals. Uh, You know, the way the movement spreads is via the Internet or via seminars that are held in hotel meeting rooms to teach people the supposed techniques for getting out of debt or becoming rich or whatever it may be. But they're essentially individuals as opposed to uh, large organizations. But perhaps the most surprising thing, as Mr. Potok notes, is how popular some of the anti-government ideas that animated first the Posse Comitatus and then militia sympathizers, including McVeigh, had become with mainstream American society. You know, the the basic ideas of the militia movement 
uh, really did begin with the posse, but they went through all kinds of mutations to the point where it's hard to talk about, you know, what precisely is uh, the core set of ideas that define the militia movement. You know, at the very center, the idea which has persisted right through today is that the government is our enemy. So, you know, in a sense, this begins in, in the political mainstream with the idea that the government uh, should be made small enough to drown in a bathtub and all that kind of thing. So it was the Ronald Reagans of the world who really began this idea in a mainstream way that the government is not there to help. It is not there to make our society a fairer place. It's not there to run infrastructure to support all of us or to militarily defend us from external threats. Uh, it's there to oppress us. So, you know, I think that uh, what happened immediately uh, after Oklahoma City uh, shows pretty clearly how deeply that set of ideas had penetrated the political mainstream. There was polling immediately uh, after the Oklahoma City bombing uh, that showed, if I remember, something close to 40 percent of Americans felt at that time that the government was a quote-unquote imminent threat to their liberties. Uh, that was pretty shocking. Uh, today, that number uh, is somewhere in the mid-60s, so it has gotten even worse. Yes, even back in the economic boom times and relative peace of the 1990s, a significant percentage of our countrymen expected the proverbial jackbooted government thugs to storm through everyone's door and force them to give up their guns, worship Satan, and get gay married. Of course, as we noted in the last episode, the fact that the government done fucked up several engagements with domestic extremists, from the shooting at Ruby Ridge to the bloodbath at Waco, made everything worse. At some point, the feds realized that going barrel to barrel with people who were excited about dying for their imaginary cause was a stupid goddamn way to deal with these situations. Thus, they adopted a more patient, hands-off approach that has meant far fewer deaths. Beginning with the confrontation in Waco and the ultimate uh, conflagration at the compound, I think American law enforcement has had to face the fact in a very serious way that these kinds of traumatic standoffs have a way of ending very very badly. They've realized in a number of cases that it is simply wiser uh, to stand back rather than to create essentially martyrs. The, the militia movement was a direct outgrowth uh, of the Waco confrontation and the belief on the part literally of tens of millions of Americans that the federal government had intentionally carried out a mass murder in Waco. You know, we saw that begin to change in the aftermath uh, of the Waco confrontation. Uh, in 1993, probably most dramatically uh, in Montana in the late 90s during a standoff with the Montana Freeman. When the federal agents simply stood back, they created kind of cordon, but it was miles away uh, from the farmhouse where the Montana Freeman had holed up, and they simply sat there. They did not act like they acted in Waco. They didn't uh, cut off the power. They didn't bombard the farmhouse with uh, unpleasant music. Uh, you know, they didn't try and arrest anyone by rushing in there. And ultimately everyone in that farmhouse came out, surrendered, and ultimately went to jail for their various crimes. So, you know, I think there is a residual and important idea in the minds uh, of law enforcement today that it is really much wiser uh, to avoid these kinds of confrontations. So, the government figured out a better way to handle these sorts of standoffs. That's great. But what about trying to eliminate the threat? Why didn't the 90s see a war on domestic terror? 
I mean, OKC was unambiguous evidence that at least some right-wing militia lunatics were actively waging a guerrilla war against the government. And more than a decade and a half after 9-11, we certainly know how the government deals with terrorist threats these days. So you would assume that after Oklahoma, with militias and their sympathizers offering an easy, very high-profile public target, the feds would have started kicking down doors, infiltrating meetings, and passing legislation that made monitoring extremists' conversations easier, a la the Patriot Act. Of course, we did no such thing. There were a number of reasons for this. Well, at least one. White guys with guns aren't as scary as brown guys with box cutters. Indeed. Because the groups with whom the OKC terrorists were associated were composed of mostly white dudes, the government's response wasn't a Patriot Act, but rather a toothless congressional hearing, wherein representatives, seemingly terrified of crazy, or at least crazy curious, voters, impacting their future electoral chances, tried a subtle dance whereby they attempted to express outrage without actually, you know, focusing that outrage on obvious targets, aggressive, anti-government militia types, like the ones in front of them. As Daniel Levitas reports in his seminal The Terrorist Next Door, during these hearings, Senator Arlen Specter invited no representatives of watchdog groups or victims of militia harassment to testify. He also invited five militiamen to speak, and they succeeded in turning the hearings into a platform for their beliefs. For those interested, this farce is preserved for posterity on YouTube. Here's Norman Olson, founder of the Michigan Militia, defying committee chairman Senator Arlen Specter. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Olson. Mr. Olson, I heard you say on national television that you could understand why someone would bomb the Oklahoma City Federal Building. Uh, how can you say that? How can you understand why someone would bomb a building and kill so many innocent uh, men, women, and children. What I said was that I understand the dynamic of retribution. Revenge and retribution are a natural dynamic which occurs when justice is taken out of the equation. When justice is removed from the equation, then the dynamic of revenge, retribution, and retaliation will take place. I understand the dynamic, sir. That is what I meant. Well, all right, Mr. Wilson, let's not deal in sound bites. Do you now understand why someone bombed the Oklahoma City Federal Building? The Oklahoma federal building, I would give that information to the FBI. I understand the dynamics, sir. It is up to you to do the investigation, and I feel that the FBI, for some reason, has taken seven to eight weeks to find someone who is not guilty. I think it's about time that they start looking for the ones who are guilty. Now, we'll pursue parts of that later. Maybe some of you out there could make heads or tails of that rambling non-answer, but I couldn't. Oh, and the seven to eight weeks to find somebody who's not guilty. Refer to Tim McVeigh, who you know was guilty. But what's crystal clear about this whole event is that Olson and co. weren't backing down one rhetorical inch, no matter how stupid their ideas sounded. For example, here's Senator Herbert Cole asking Olson about a theory that clearly belongs in the Conspiracy Lunatic Hall of Fame. You haven't responded. I said to you, are you we responded to the facts that you sent out on April 28th. It says, on April 19th, a day that will live in infamy, the government of Japan, in retaliation for the United States gas attack on the subway in Japan, blew up the federal building in Oklahoma City. Your and plan. I reply to you, sir, that if we wait, if we wait and the investigation is done, I believe that we will find collusion between governments in the involvement in the Oklahoma City bombing if we will wait and allow the investigations to be conducted. <sighs> All right. Uh, Mr. Fletcher. So, to be clear, 
Olson saying the OKC attack wasn't McVeigh's murderous dickbag cri de coeur against the U.S. powers that be. Rather, it was retaliation by the wily Japanese government. Revenge for the sarin gas attack on the Tokyo subway, which, as everyone knows, the U.S. government perpetrated? What? You were blaming that Japanese doomsday Aum Shin Rikyo cult for the Tokyo attack. Like... Just because they had a crazy leader who exhorted his followers to bring on Armageddon, and the perpetrators were caught, and there was a mountain of evidence, and it was proven in a court of law? Sheeple. The militia folks also took the opportunity to hold their own press conference, purporting to demonstrate that, again, quoting Levitas, Not one, but two bombs were used in Oklahoma City, thereby proving the blast originated inside the building and was the work of government agents. Okay. So nobody beyond McVeigh, Nichols, and Associates were held publicly accountable, or even asked to apologize and repent for sharing the bomber's violent anti-government mission. And this is true, even though every single Muslim person in the world is expected to apologize for every Islam-inspired lunatic who does anything, anywhere, ever. Fantastic. So then what happened to the militias? Like me, you may assume that their brazen displays of insanity quickly dragged these weirdos into the harsh and antiseptic light of public scrutiny, and their ideas were rejected by the good-hearted American people. After all, does anyone recall the public 15 minutes of fame of any militia lunatics outlasting the good seasons of The X-Files? Me neither, but Mr. Potok set me straight. Contrary uh, to what many analysts uh, have said, the militia movement did not shrink after the Oklahoma City bombing. It's not true that the people involved in the so-called Patriot movement were so horrified by the murders of 168 people uh, that they kind of backed off and the militia movement uh, caved in of its own weight. In fact, what really happened was that almost immediately after the bombing, the militia movement uh, produced a set of conspiracy theories which said, in essence, that the Clinton administration had purposely bombed the Murrah building in Oklahoma City. It was perfectly happy to murder 168 people with the aim of so frightening Americans that they would accept draconian anti-terrorism legislation, uh, that they would give up their few remaining liberties uh, to an oppressive federal government and so on. And I think the proof that this idea really did take off in those quarters in the militia world uh, is the fact that the number of militias kept growing after uh, the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995 and in fact peaked the next year in 1996. So what we saw uh, in the late 90s was finally the kind of uh, weight of this movement catching up to it and ultimately bringing it down. So, you know, although uh, the movement was able to explain away the Oklahoma City bombing as a plot by the Clintons to uh, suppress our liberties and so on, eventually other factors uh, began to catch up uh, with the movement. Uh, Those factors were the fact that it was not... Uh, only the Oklahoma City bombing that was a sort of public atrocity. There were all kinds of other plots and some successful plots, murders carried out, bombings, people handling uh, anthrax and other toxins like that for nefarious reasons. I think that as a sociological matter, these kinds of hot movements, uh, as the Patriot Movement was in the mid-90s, have a a limited shelf life. Uh, People cannot stay in this sort of excited state for year after year after year expecting a revolution 
or the government to attempt to throw uh, liberty-loving Americans into concentration camps or whatever apocalyptic uh, scenario it is that you expect to be right around the corner. So I, I think by the end of the 90s, the militia movement uh, was sort of petering out. Uh, it was weakening. And then, of course, George W. Bush was elected president. Uh, and took office in January of 2001. We've seen uh, over the years that, you know, when we have quite conservative administrations uh, in office, the radical right tends to diminish. Uh, in effect, what's happening is the government is co-opting the movement, in a sense, using a lot of their talking points and issues and so on. And so the need for an organized movement or the uh, energy that creates an organized movement tends to go down. That's right. The election of a mainstream conservative administration was the wet blanket thrown over the militia fire. Membership gradually petered out, and then in September of 2001, the nation decided the militia threat wasn't the most important thing after all. But just because the militias weren't making headlines, that didn't mean the fervor that ignited them had simply dissipated. Throughout the 2000s, while the organized militia movement lost membership, the ideology was still going gangbusters. What had once been a fairly organized movement diffused into a looser set of highly individualistic conspiracists based on the idea of sovereign citizenship. So, what makes a person a sovereign citizen? Militia Watcher, take it away. Well, it is extremely difficult to say uh, precisely what is the central idea of being a sovereign citizen. But it boils down to the notion that certain people... Uh, either are or can make themselves independent of the federal governments, that true uh, citizens of the land are not liable to federal laws or tax laws. You know, sovereign, the sovereign citizens movement is also known and really infamous uh, for all kinds of incredibly bizarre uh, court documents that they file, either seeking to get money from the government or demanding that the government lay off them or perhaps uh, trying to force a mortgage company that's foreclosing on their home to quit and so on. So at this point, we're starting to see the anti-government extremist underground splinter. While plenty of conspiracy-minded folks were still meeting with other loons on the regular, this was the point where an already cantankerous ideology that looked askance at the very idea of control or leadership went full don't tread on me. And, of course, as the mainstream right wing took power and the focus of national security policy shifted to Islamic terrorism and the war in Iraq, the anti-federal ire that drove the posse, the order, and the militias went from a conflagration to a threatening smolder. However, And surely this is a coinkydink. Almost the second we elected our first center-left African-American president, the sovereign citizen movement, disparate and disorganized as it was, began to make headlines. We will now take you through a greatest hits of post-Obama, pre-Trump, sovereign citizen dipshittery, starting with the relatively harmless and ending up with the tragic and horrifying. Buckle up, kids. Hell Cruise. So, imagine that you're a teller in a Bank of America in a suburb of Miami in 2009. You come into work, sit down with your morning coffee, open your window, start helping customers. 
Suddenly, a cane-wielding man in a suit, along with 30 or so of his followers, enters your branch. They block the entrance, and their leader informs you that your bank is subject to an eviction issued by the United States Private Court, based on a pending $15.25 billion lawsuit filed the previous month in Miami-Dade County Court. As detailed in the SPLC's intelligence report, Angel Cruz was the founder of a company called the United Cities, but all of the operations of that company were apparently based on Cruz's wholehearted embrace of sovereign ideology. He believed that he had the unlimited right to print money and issue checks, for example, and his employees were actually just folks who had handed over real American currency to Cruz, who in exchange offered fanciful promises of lucrative jobs for 30 years and new cars, while their mortgage, credit card, and utility bills were to be paid off in full by their employer. Angel Cruz uh, was a guy in Miami, a kind of dapper fellow with a nice uh, nice suit, good-looking uh, granny glasses and so on, who decided that he was very angry at the Bank of America because they would not cash a $14.3 million fake check that he had written. You know, and this is classic uh, sovereign citizen technique. You know, you you fire up your computer, uh, you create a document that uh, you call a bank draft or some similar name, uh, and you then go demand that someone cash it for you. Cruz uh, was angry at the Bank of America because they said, no, uh, this is not a real check. We're not going to give you uh, 14 plus million dollars. Uh, And so Cruz uh, did a couple of things. First, he walked into a local police station in the Miami suburb and announced that he was going to be foreclosing uh, on a couple of Bank of America offices, that they were illegitimate and so on. I think the police at that point hardly knew what to make of this uh, strange fellow. But in any case, shortly after that, Cruz walked in with some 30 of his followers Uh, into a small Bank of America uh, outlet in the strip mall and actually did take it over. They were wearing fake U.S. Treasury badges. Uh, They had 10 armed guards, and they did briefly take this place over. Nothing really happened. Uh, They didn't steal any money. Uh, No one was hurt. Uh, And very shortly after that, Cruz was arrested, and he is now in prison, serving an eight-year sentence. But, you know, I think the case of Angel Cruz showed you how really deluded some of these people are. You know, I think while uh, the whole sovereign citizens movement uh, has many aspects as as a sort of con game, financial scam, nevertheless, you look at some of the uh, protagonists, and these are people who have really been convinced. They really believe they're right. And with that, we turn our attention to James Timothy Turner. On March 22, 2013, the president was found guilty of federal tax crimes. You might be surprised you didn't hear anything about this in the media at the time, especially since about a third of our countrymen remain convinced that then-Commander-in-Chief Barack Obama was an Islamic, radical, Marxist, Kenyan, atheist, Nazi, reptilian, alien commie, and that jail's too good for the likes of him. But it makes more sense when you realize the president in question was one James Timothy Turner, and he was the self-declared commander-in-chief of some made-up nonsense of his own devising called the Republic for the United States of America. Without further ado, I would like to introduce the president of the Republic of the United States of America, Mr. James Timothy Turner. Thank you, Kelby. Thank you, Wade, for the prayer. Uh, Across the nation, 
I know that you have worked very diligently and you've worked and sacrificed much, and believe me, I understand that. We, we all have sacrificed much. But our republic is coming together, folks. It is coming together. It's, a, it's an exciting time. I, I'm sitting here watching this develop, and I, we were sitting talking last night, and I said, you know, since our founding fathers, no one has ever gotten this far. No group has ever gotten where you have gotten tonight. That excerpt was from the then-president-elect's stirring address to the Republic. Address is here defined as a conference call. Yeah, his triumphal electoral speech could only be heard on speakerphone. But so what? So they're not quite ready for prime time. Y'all, they're totes adorbs. Mr. Potok? Well, James Timothy Turner is a man from Ozark, Alabama, who has a very uh, bizarre set of beliefs, which really are sovereign beliefs, but uh, to which he adds uh, his own special dash. For instance, uh, he told his many followers at one point several years ago that he was able to cure leukemia in five days. And, you know, this is a kind of common thing. Uh, in the world of the radical right. Very, very many uh, individuals and writers on the extreme right for years now have claimed the government you know, knows how to treat cancer and all kinds of other dreaded diseases, but is withholding for a whole set of nefarious reasons that information from the public, from all of us, because of course the government is not on our side. James Timothy Turner became famous because uh, he created a group that was ultimately called the Republic for the United States of America. You know, it's unclear uh, precisely how large uh, this group really was, but it claimed uh, at its peak to have created an entire shadow government of senators and congressmen and of local representatives in all 50 states. That is almost certainly not true, Uh, but in any case, Turner did have an awful lot of followers, and he taught those followers, uh, or purported to teach those followers, how not to pay taxes, how to get out of uh, bankruptcy uh, proceedings without having to pay anybody any money, how not to pay off your credit card debts. Ultimately, Turner was indicted by the federal courts in Alabama uh, and sent to prison for 18 years. Uh, What he had done that got him in trouble more than any other thing uh, was to try to pay his taxes, which he'd refused to pay for a few years because sovereign citizens don't think they owe any taxes, with a fictitious $300 million bond. One of these fake documents, fake financial instruments that sovereign citizens are so fond of producing. So, uh, you know, Turner was kind of an amusing character. You know, he had all kinds of complaints. He attacked, for instance, at one point, uh, nine particular U.S. presidents said they were responsible for rampant homosexuality in the United States and for the intentional poisoning of our people, quote unquote. Uh, So Turner was one of the people out there who believes that uh, the government is laying down so-called chemtrails with airplanes in order to poison its citizens for reasons that, frankly, it's hard to discern. Uh, You know, Turner just seemed to be quite mad. He thought the government was out to do all of these terrible things. Could never really explain why, but he knew that if you followed him, you know, you could make yourself free from all of these terrible things. Uh, You know, at one point he said to his followers, we're more powerful than any government on earth. We are a nation of kings. Turner's ideology Uh, you know, clearly uh, started with the posse comitatus, didn't share with the posse the intense 
uh, anti-black and anti-Jewish hatred that characterized the early forms uh, of this ideology. By the way, while Mr. Turner has gone to jail, the Republic for the United States of America is still going strong, having elected James Buchanan Geiger as the second notional president. How do I know this? Because they have a YouTube channel, silly. The America that our forefathers founded is gone, taken over by foreign interests. The America that we know today is in grave danger. Not only are we looking at an economic collapse in progress, we are seeing the effects of years of planning on the part of those foreign interests to remake America into one of their third world thiefdoms. If you study the Nazi socialist takeover in Germany, then you will have a good idea of how this takeover is proceeding in America. I gotta be honest, as sovereign lunatics go, these guys are kind of the best. They produce videos for all of the super official government that they've got going on. That excerpt was from the latest State of the Republic video, but they're all pretty wonderful. If you're the sort who can't get enough of people acting simultaneously super sincere and totally crazy. We're begging him to get treatment for this. I highly recommend watching President Geiger's inauguration as well. All of the pretend officials are sharply dressed and clearly nervous to be on camera. They think their actions on this webcam are world historically significant. And while they're crazy and wrong, they are also super engaged, peaceful, crazy people. And aw, oh, how can you hate on this? You may be seated. Thank you, Ms. Geiger. Would uh, President-elect Geiger come forth to swear in his oath of office? Can you raise your right hand. I. I, James Buchanan Geiger, James Buchanan Geiger, do solemnly swear, do solemnly swear, that I will faithfully execute, that I will Geiger is sporting one of those Janet Jackson, Madonna, Beyonce headset mics, which makes the whole thing even more surreal. You can also hear from the state level reps like this guy. Zuluaga. I'm the regional ambassador for the Southwest region of the Republic for the United States of America. Have you noticed that something's wrong, seriously wrong in America? You got a feeling in your gut that's saying, I don't know that everything's right. My job's uncertain. My home's uncertain. Every time there's a, another Congress, they're doing stuff that everybody says, stop it. We don't want a health care bill, but we're getting it anyway. All right. So let me explain. <laughs> Wait just a minute. Is he stealing my shtick? Let's listen to that again with a little accompaniment. Have you noticed that something's wrong? seriously wrong in America? You got a feeling in your gut that's saying, I don't know that everything's right. My job's uncertain. My home's uncertain. Every time there's a, another Congress, they're doing stuff that everybody says, stop it. We don't want a health care bill, but we're getting it anyway. All right. So Motherfucker. Well, Mr. Totally Imaginary Arizona Representative, you'll be hearing from my entirely fictitious lawyer. Anyway, the Republic for the USA does not, apart from President Turner's tax issues, appear to be much of a threat to the functioning of the body politic of the original recipe USA. And neither is our next subject. Though he is a pretty significant threat to some gullible people's bodies. Rick Van Teel. Investigator 
Darcy Spears gives us an exclusive look inside the backyard trailer that police say he used as a medical clinic. Imagine being desperate enough to seek medical care here. Authorities say as many as 90 people came to this backyard trailer to see the man who calls himself Dr. Rick. This is where everything went down. There's a surgical table that you can see right here in the middle of the trailer. It is surrounded by all manner of medical equipment, including syringes, a blood pressure cuff. There are shelves here that are covered with pornographic materials as well as medical materials. If you look up in a cabinet... Rick Van Teel, a former porn star, male escort, and inventor of sex toys, had, over the past few years, taken on a daring midlife change in career. He had become a doctor. An interesting, even an admirable choice for a man over 50, dedicating his life to healing the sick and helping his fellow human beings. Yeah, maybe not so much. Rick's path to this prestigious line of work was rather less rigorous than the traditional undergrad, medical school, intern, resident, board-certified physician route. Budding entrepreneur and witch doctor Rick instead opened a clinic in a trailer on his property and started doing surgeries based solely on his extensive experience. What kind of experience? Well, we'll just let Dr. Rick explain that for you himself. So, we're here today with Rick, who is going to perform a sac removal. So, Rick, are you a surgeon? No, but I, I played one once in a, a movie. Is this your first sack removal? Yep, this is the first one. Are you excited? I think it should be fun. And where did you learn to remove a sack? On YouTube, of course. God, it's amazing what you can yeah, learn. Yeah, you you'd be amazed what you can learn on YouTube. You could get an education. Militia Watcher, that's your cue. The story of Rick Van Teel uh, in Las Vegas is a story uh, where we see sovereign citizen ideology uh, merge into the simply bizarrely criminal. Uh, you know, Rick Van Teel was a guy who was, uh, by his own description, a porn star, a male escort, and an inventor of sex toys. Uh, and he's apparently quite proud of this because he's uh, written quite a lot about it. Ultimately, though, after getting in trouble with uh, police officers for the I don't know uh, how many time, Rick Van Teel decided that he would become a doctor. However, like many sovereign citizens, he thought that uh, the people who really are doctors, the medical and scientific establishment, uh, were a bunch of scheming liars who were ripping off the American people who didn't realize or were hiding the fact that with very simple techniques, you could cure all kinds of diseases. And so Rick Van Teel set himself up in a uh, nasty, dirty trailer. And there, as a physician, he uh, was accused of performing dozens of abortions, of circumcisions, of castrations, of root canals, and of cancer treatment. When the authorities got wind of this, uh, needless to say, Rick Van Teel was uh, arrested and his story became a kind of cautionary tale of the horrors of certain people uh, when they get uh, some of these incredibly bizarre ideas. Rick Van Teel claims that he learned how to perform operations on human beings by watching YouTube videos. And he also put forth this actually rather amusing claim uh, that what was behind uh, a lot of the illness uh, that he saw in his quote-unquote patients were something he called morgulons. 
you know, what morgulons are supposed to be uh, is really uh, rather unclear, but these are something in the body creates disease uh, and that he has described as a secret government bioweapon that was, you know, has been unleashed on humanity via chemtrails and so on laid down by the federal government. So uh, Rick Van Teel was a mix uh, of a con man. Uh, a sovereign citizen and uh, uh, just a delusional character uh, who clearly needed to be taken off the streets as soon as humanly possible. Not to beat a crazy dead horse, but this Morgulons thing is worth a little more scrutiny, especially from a podcast devoted to crazy ideas. As Bill Moreland's article for the SPLC notes, Dr. Rick's website has a lot to say about the causes of this imaginary syndrome, and it's all deliciously fucking nuts. It should be called genetically modified organism disease, a bioweapon that has been unleashed on humanity via genetically modified food and geoengineering chemtrails. God Damn, do we love chemtrails. Just you wait. That episode's going to be a hoot. Oh, good news. The doc's website notes there's another way to avoid morgulons. That is... If you, quote, are just so spiritual that you move the chemtrails out of your path. From your mouth to God's ears, Dr. Rick. On the bright side, again quoting Bill Moreland's article, Van Teel claimed that he did all of this, quote, at unbeatable prices. Well, one would hope. In exchange for Bitcoin gold and silver, and firearms. As we record this, he's awaiting trial on just a goddamn smorgasbord of criminal charges, not least of which is conducting castrations without a license. <coughs> Thus ends the fun part of our look at sovereign citizens. From here, things get upsettingly real. Back in 2010, sovereign citizen Jerry Kane was going through a tough time. As detailed in reporter J.J. McNabb's excellent piece, Sovereign Citizen Kane, he was having trouble attracting like-minded souls to attend his all-day sessions on sovereign legal techniques, meaning that all of the miles that he and his teenage son had traveled across the country and all of the expenses the two had incurred were not paying off. On the last morning of his life, he was driving an unlicensed van carrying firearms and pot headed to Florida. We know... Armed man with underage board drives unlicensed van full of marijuana towards Florida is pretty much the definition of a dog bites man headline. But what happened next was no joke. May the 20th, 2010 started out like any other day. Two veterans of our West Memphis, Arkansas Police Department, Bill Evans and Brandon Powdert, were patrolling the interstate as part of the department's drug and addiction team, something they love to do. They became involved in what seemed to be a routine traffic stop, though I've always warned my officers there is no such thing. But really, how much more routine can you get than pulling over a father and son in what looked like a church bus? My men didn't realize who or what they were dealing with. Neither officer made it home, and one of them was my son. Uh, Jerry and Joseph Kane were a father and his 16-year-old son who had been traveling the country giving seminars on uh, sovereign citizen techniques. Primarily, they had been purporting to teach people for money, for a fee, how to get out of bankruptcy foreclosures on their homes. So, you know, they were uh, snake oil salesmen. The 16-year-old boy, in fact, had been homeschooled his whole life and had been traveling around for a long time with his father in a beat-up old white van. And they were pulled over in West Memphis, Tennessee, because they were using a fake license plate, which is what sovereign citizens very often do. And that's the reason they very often are pulled over by police officers. The dash cam films of what followed are really pretty horrible and shocking. 
What they show is uh, the two officers pulling over uh, Jerry and Joseph Kane, walking up to the vehicle and being handed a document, which uh, was purportedly the registration or something to replace the registration of the vehicle. This was a sovereign citizen document filled with all kinds of gobbledygook, uh, nonsensical statements. You see in the dash cam film, one of the officers looking at this and trying to understand what it is. The officer looks uh, very confused uh, by what he's reading. He's looking at this document and he turns his back to the car that uh, he and his partner have just pulled over. And at that moment, you see the younger Kane, the 16-year-old Kane, jump out of the car with an AK-47 and simply gun this man down. Some of the rest uh, was not caught on dash cam films, but uh, this kid then ran around the back of a car and executed the second police officer. Both men then jumped in their van uh, and rode off into the distance and, in fact, managed to get away for about 45 minutes until they were spotted by a police helicopter in a Walmart parking lot where they were ultimately killed in a final exchange of gunfire. You know, it's an incredible case. For one thing, Jerry Kane... Uh, about a year before the shootout, had actually predicted, when it comes to killing, when I start uh, shooting, I won't be able to stop, or words to that effect. So what we're after here is not fighting, it's conquering. I don't want to have to kill anybody, but if they keep messing with me, that's what it's going to have to come out. That's what it's going to come down to, is I'm going to have to kill, and if I have to kill one, then I'm not going to be able to stop. I just know it. I mean, I have an addictive personality. I haven't had a drink in 18 years because I can't handle this shit. So, you know, the Keynes were very much example of the reason that the FBI in 2011 deemed the sovereign citizens movement a quote unquote domestic terror movement. You know, the fact is that while certainly the vast majority of people who have sovereign citizens ideas are not violent and have not killed any police officers, there's a pretty significant uh, minority of people in that world who have. There have been something like 10 police officers now. Uh, murdered by sovereign citizens or people who were in one way or another immersed in those kinds of ideas. So, you know, the other thing to say about uh, the Kane uh, murders is that the police chief of West Memphis, a man named Bob Powder, uh, was the father, in fact, of one of the officers who was killed on that day. Bob Powder, uh, I think, uh, will never stop being angry at the federal government for failing to adequately train police officers around the country with respect to sovereign citizens. Bob Powder has, I think, plausibly claimed that if his son and his son's partner knew something about the sovereign citizens movement when they pulled Jerry and Joseph Kane over, that they would not be dead today. So uh, Bob Powder, who is now retired as uh, police chief of West Memphis, uh, has spent much of the last few years going around the country trying to raise the alarm among law enforcement officials about the very real threat posed by people like Jerry and Joseph King. And the work of Chief Powdert and others is paying off, as we'll hear a bit later. Then there's the case of Gerard and Amanda Miller, a violent and delusional couple who went on a shooting spree in Las Vegas. Well, I mean, look, Jared and Amanda Miller... Uh, were a couple of very strange people with a bunch of really wacky ideas. Uh, I would not uh, call them sovereign citizens. Uh, you know, they were people who believed that there should be a revolution 
uh, but they never really could explain why. They were not the brightest people on the, on the block, uh, to say the least. Uh, in any event, they went to the Bundy standoff while it was still developing in April of 2014 in Nevada, but were fairly quickly thrown out when the people who were essentially running the show there learned Jared Miller was a convicted felon and felt that he would be bad press for them. They wanted to get rid of him. Not long after that, a couple of weeks after the standoff, Jared and Amanda Miller walked into a restaurant in Las Vegas and simply assassinated two police officers who were sitting there eating slices of pizza for lunch. They then threw down a Gadsden flag with the don't tread on me uh, language and coiled snake insignia on the body, as well as a note uh, saying something about the revolution is now starting. These two then ran across the street into a Walmart, man confronted to them who had a weapon, and that man was killed. Uh, you know, they then made their way across the street as police converged on the area, went into a Walmart where they were running from police and uh, shooting at police officers outside the building. Uh, there was a customer inside the Walmart that decided that uh, he would uh, help the police. He took aim at Jared Miller, but Amanda Miller came up behind him and executed him as well. Ultimately, uh, both of the Millers uh, were killed. You know, it was a kind of shocking case in the sense that these two uh, had murdered police officers for really no discernible reason at all and had done so on the basis of uh, not, not any real ideology uh, beyond the idea that they somehow thought, uh, you know, the government was wicked uh, and needed uh, a severe, uh, you know, sort of upbraiding. In case you missed it there, Mr. Potok is saying that the Millers were too crazy for the sovereign citizen movement, calling to mind the words of one Walter Sobchak. Fuck me. I mean, say what you want about the tenets of National Socialism, dude. At least it's an ethos. These are only a small sampling of the numerous confrontations that sovereign citizens and associated nutjobs have had with law enforcement over the past decade plus. These include enough violent encounters that, as CNN reported in 2015, A survey last year of state and local law enforcement officers listed sovereign citizen terrorists ahead of foreign Islamist and domestic militia groups as the top domestic terror threat. Yet, our countrymen remain far more afraid of Islamic extremism, probably because the perpetrators of sovereign and other domestic violence look to many like, quote, real Americans, and thus apparently less threatening. A government report on Christian extremism as a domestic terror threat notes the real challenge faced by federal and state officials in combating this brand of extremism. Specifically, the challenge is that Christian extremists who commit terrorist acts are lone actors who fit into mainstream American society. They work alone and readily blend in with common population demographic, white, Christian, Caucasian males. However, in addition to the violent encounters, the popularity of online video and the increasing ubiquity of recording devices has also unleashed a torrent of high-quality comedy. Specifically, I'm thinking here of the phenomenon of sovereign citizens recording themselves getting... I think the word the kids use is owned. Right. Just absolutely pwned by law enforcement. Proving at least some officers have gotten Chief Powdert's message about handling sovereign citizen true believers. Let's start with this gem of a 911 call. The caller is an irate woman engaged in a high-speed chase with police officers who suspect her of drunk driving. To be clear, we also suspect her of drunk driving. Oh, and she's a sovereign citizen. And she thinks that if they pull her over, the cops owe her 300k. Enjoy. 
This is Jenna. I don't have the emergency, but the car behind me does. Okay. And I'm trying to figure out what that is because I'm driving 45 on, I believe it's Dogstown Road. Okay. And I have a contract with you guys that um, if you want to go ahead and declare a false sense of emergency, it's $300,000 per incident. Okay, so I need to make sure. Ma'am. I need to make sure that you guys are willing to pay the, the fee that you already owe before I pull over. Okay, I don't know what you're talking about. What can I do for you? I know you don't. I know you don't, but there is a officer that's apparently affiliated with your agency with his emergency lights on and, and his siren on right now, which is a false sense of uh, emergency. And if I am not mistaken, there's no sense of emergency. Has there anyone been reported run over? Okay. Is there anyone been reported hurt? Okay. Because I don't think that they are. Okay, ma'am. I'm not I... running for this cop. I'm doing 40 miles an hour with this cop behind me with his freaking siren on, acting like a moron. Can you okay. please let him know to turn it off because okay, I'm not running? Ma'am, can you pull over? No, no ma'am. Can you pull I'm over for the officer? Over because that's voluntary. That's voluntary. There's no emergency. You are over. Because it's hard to resist, I'm going to play some best of audio of many similar encounters with, you know, appropriate musical accompaniment. First, we start with some traffic stops. So the reason why I stopped you today is because when you're going down Ohio, you are doing it in excess of like 35, 40 miles an hour, okay? Okay. You have your uh, license on you? Um, what's their emergency? What's the emergency? Yeah, I noticed your emergency lights were on. Yes, because it's called a traffic stop. Oh, okay. So if I can see your license, your registration, your insurance, please. Um, right now I'm just traveling um, by the state law and government law and constitutional law. Okay. Um, I actually don't even need a driver's license to participate in traveling. Driver's license is just for commerce. I just learned about this. Okay. Um, I just looked it up on Black's Law Dictionary and um, traveling and driving is completely different. I was like, okay. what? Um, I just learned about it recently and it trips me out. Dude. Okay. Like the DMV has been scamming us. from California? Through. Yes. Okay. Do you suspect me of a crime where I, 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 I identify yourself under the highway traffic? No, I do not. I just proved in court I do not have to identify myself to a police officer because I have a, because I'm a freeman on the land. Number one and number two, you guys suspect me of criminal activity to detain me. So yes, you do. I don't care what your highway traffic act says. I have no contracts under the act. I've canceled them all, so you can't enforce it on me. No, I'm not. I don't have to. That's my right. I'm operating under the Republic of Canada. That's a legal jurisdiction here in Canada. Because Canada's dissolved. Canada's dissolved. I'm also going to hand you this paperwork. Yep. The judge bowed down to me. It took two minutes because you're using trust law in the court, and I know it. So because of that, I know I don't have to identify myself to a cop. Don't open my door. No, you don't. You have no right to open my door. Nope, I'm leaving. Don't get in front of me. You're pulling your gun on me? 
Okay, he's pulling his gun on me. Everybody, I have not done anything criminally wrong. Yes, sir, I am. I have for speeding, 72 and a 55. So I need to see your driver's license. Yes, it is. I need to see your license and proof of insurance, sir. Can you prove that I'm driving? Sir, I need to see your license and proof of insurance. Am I driving? Yes, sir. No, I'm not. I'm traveling. Okay, I'm giving you a lawful order. What you may have, what you may have, what you may have is is the opportunity to read. Whoa, whoa, whoa. This is assault. This is assault. You've broken my windows. I do not consent. I do not consent. Oh, this is police I'm brutality. I'm Stop. This is police brutality. I haven't done anything. And then an incident with airport police. Um, this guy isn't letting me go through the metal detector like the website said I could. And he is telling me that I either have to go through a cancer-causing body scanner or get molested before I can get on the plane. Well, I don't I think he said you had to get molested. Well, he, he calls it a pat-down, but that's a euphemism for sexual molestation. Okay, not in my experience, but... Have you ever been sexually molested? I've been, I've gone through the checkpoint. Have you times. ever been sexually molested? No, I have not. Okay. Okay, it says Port of Portland Police, I assume that's Correct. the city of Portland? Port of Portland. Okay, what's that? You're standing in. Okay, so you have... The, the authority to remove you if you do not, are not willing to go through screen. You don't have the authority to remove me. No, I do. No, you don't. That would be assault. No, it wouldn't be assault. Yes, it would it be... I'm in a public place. Okay. I'm telling you, I'm giving you a lawful order as a police officer that you have to leave. Well, I don't recognize that authority. Right now, you are not allowed to be here. Why? You're not going through the screening process. I'm giving you a lawful order to leave, or you will be arrested for trespass. Why am I not allowed to Robbie, be here? Robbie, are you listening to me? I am. I'm asking because you you're not going through the process. You'll have to walk out here. Are you are you attempting to not listen and answer my question? Would you like to walk out here now? I would like to go on my flight. And finally, a personal favorite, a sovereign jackass who tries to muscle his way past security in a court of law. I don't have a last name. You don't have a last name? No. What's your first name? I don't have a first name either. I've got a name. My name is Robert. You can call me Robert. Oh, wow. I'm not a person. See, you, you deal here with Admiralty Maritime Jurisdiction, which deals with persons, which I am not. What are you? Are you human? I'm a man. You're human? I'm a man, yes. Are you a U.S. citizen? No. You're not a U.S. citizen? I was not born in Washington, D.C., or any territory of the federal, under federal jurisdiction, so no, I'm not a U.S. citizen. Were you born in the United States? I was born in America, yes. I'm a state citizen of one of the several states. Who's born in One of the several? Which state? Idaho. Idaho? Can I see your Idaho state license? No. I don't have one. You don't have one? My person does, but I don't. And I don't wish to create joinder with you. I'm going to go in and speak with the prosecutor. Excuse me. Excuse me. You're blocking my freedom of movement. I am. All right. Well, P. Barnes, you just admitted to me that you're violating my rights. No, I'm not. You can't come in with the camera. Well, you're violating my rights. And this is also freedom of the press. From behind you. This is also freedom of the press. I mean, I don't know what the hell law book you're reading, man, but it doesn't apply to me. 
you leave the camera with your mother outside the courtroom and you come in? <laughs> you are not God. You have no jurisdiction over me. God's not worried about cameras, sir. I am. All right. Please step aside. I'm going in. No, you're not going in. Don't touch me. You're not going in, sir. Let the record show that you just battered me. Step back. And you're using... Oh! Ah! Ah! Stop, please. I'm not doing anything wrong. Hey. Oh, we know. You'd like to taste that last dick back yourself. You are not alone. You probably noticed a number of bizarre phrases uttered by the Sovereigns in that compilation, and that there's very little overlap between what Sovereigns think they know about the law and the way the law actually works. Sometimes to hilarious effect, especially in that last case. These legal-sounding arguments are part of a huge web of interlocking, incredibly stupid concepts that sovereigns have been convincing themselves and each other of for decades now. We're going to cover those very, very thoroughly in the next episode. But for now, we have come to the flowering of sovereign stupidity with which most folks are currently familiar, the connected standoffs of 2014 and 2016, both of which heavily featured the family of one Nevada rancher named Cliven Bundy. the story of the Bundy family's standoffs against the federal government are a familiar tale, a situation driven by one of the most divisive, hot-button issues we face today. Grazing rights for cattle on federal land. Wait, so you're saying this whole series of standoffs, the fact that these dipshits have gone toe-to-toe with the feds twice now, boils down to where and how pre-hamburgers munch grass? Well, kinda, yeah. Basically, the Bureau of Land Management, or BLM, told Cliven & Co. back in the 90s that they had to stop grazing on certain federal lands that were declared off-limits to protect endangered wildlife. Cliven decided not only that he was going to feed his cows wherever he damned well pleased, but that he wasn't even going to pay the feds for the privilege anymore. So what happened back in the 1990s when he started this mess? Basically? Nothing. I mean, back in 1998, he was permanently enjoined from using those lands after losing a case before the Circuit Court of Appeals. But in terms of actual enforcement, Bundy was able to go along his merry government-defying way. That is, at least until the spring of 2014, when the BLM finally decided they had had enough and started rounding up Bundy's cattle. The plan was to sell them at auction to pay part of the nearly $1 million in accumulated fees and penalties Bundy had racked up since 93. And then, well... If you watch the news, you know what happened then. Hundreds of protesters, some of them armed, came to the family's defense, prompting the government to bring its roundup to an abrupt halt. The battle escalated with a confrontation captured on video and posted to YouTube. The federal government says protesters were blocking a road, assaulting authorities and their dogs. Officers then fired a taser at a member of the Bundy family. They had the weapons, they had the dogs. More are joining the several hundred strong protest to let Bundy keep his cows on the land. And they're coming from all over the country. Cooper Mitchell drove in from Montana. This is what America is all about. And so are about 40 volunteers calling themselves militia. Right now, there's about 30 out here right now, and they are all 
they're all armed. They say they came in a display of strength against the BLM Rangers, also armed. They're carrying uh, high-powered weapons, and there's a lot of them. Now, if that's not an army, I don't know what it's called. There's an army against we the people. Okay, but this is just some ranchers scrapping with the government. And this is still a show about conspiracies, isn't it? So where's the weird stuff? Oh, don't you worry. It's a coming. See, while there were those in the state and federal government who publicly sympathized with the Bundys, many of those ended up regretting it, as Mr. Potok points out. It's incredibly shocking and and quite disgusting, to say it plainly. Uh, You know, I mean, the governor of Nevada, uh, any number of other leading politicians uh, basically described uh, the Bundys as patriots. These were people who were standing up for the Constitution, for liberty. Well, I mean, let me say that is an utter falsehood. The reality is, you know, Clive and Bundy uh, is a common thief. The man uh, stole more than a million dollars from you and me uh, and the American people. Uh, It had nothing to do with the Constitution. This guy was a small-time ripoff artist. Uh, You know, and and the thing that is more uh, enraging even than that is that grazing fees charged by the federal government are about one-sixth the level of grazing fees uh, that are charged uh, in the open market, in the free market. So in other words, the Clive and Bundys of the world are being subsidized uh, at a very high rate by the American people. And yet for Bundy, even that's too much. Uh, He doesn't want to pay a cent. He uh, you know, collects this kind of uh, mishmash, this uh, cauldron of ideas about sovereignty and the counties uh, being the ultimate form of government and so on, and uses that to defend uh, his thievery. You know, it was a remarkable thing to see after all the support that Clive and Bundy got from opportunistic, craven politicians, how those same politicians fled for the hills when Bundy began to talk about the quote-unquote problems of the American need. I want to tell you one more thing I know about the Negro. When I when I go went uh, go through Las Vegas, North Las Vegas, and I would see these little government houses, and in front of that government house, the the door was usually open, and there was always at least a half a dozen people sitting on the porch. They didn't have nothing to do. They didn't have nothing for their kids to do. They didn't have nothing for their young girls to do, and because they were basically on government subsidy. And so now what do they do? They abort their, their young children. They put their young men in jail because they never, they never learned how to pick cotton. And I've often wondered, oh, are they better off as slaves picking cotton, having family life and doing things, or are they better off under government subsidy? Yeah, they didn't get no more freedom. They got less freedom. They had less uh, family uh, alive. And their happiness, you can see in their faces, they weren't happy sitting on that car. Yes, indeed. Bundy's perspective was heavily informed by racism, though those who listen to our third episode will be... Sort of? Relieved that his paternalistic condescension is at least not of a kind with the more murderous, racist fantasies of the Turner Diaries and William Potter Gale's Posse Comitatus. But more importantly for our purposes, and as noted by several outlets, he also followed sovereign citizen-style thinking on the county as the primary unit of government in America, and the county sheriff as the sole legitimate law enforcement at the county level. Rachel Maddow picks up the story here. Well, this. The county sheriff, he says 
is the line in the sand. The county sheriff is the one who can say to the feds, beyond these bounds you shall not pass. This is not only within the scope of the sheriff's authority, it is the sheriff's sworn duty. The CSPOA will be an army to set our nation free. An army that will free us from the federal government because the county sheriff is the highest law in the land. There is no federal government. There's only the sheriff. Posse comitatus, the power of the county. I have a response for every sheriff across the United States. Every county sheriff across the United States to disarm the federal uh, bureaucrats. Take the federal, federal United States bureaucrats' guns away. If they came to arrest you, would you surrender? <laughs> I went to the proper uh, authorities. Meaning? And I don't believe, I don't believe, uh, there would have to be Clark County Sheriff. If he come to arrest me, I would definitely uh, let him arrest me. All right, let me go. He's the only man in. Go ahead. He's the only man with resting power in Clark County, Nevada. All of which, of course, meant that he refused to negotiate with federal agents as he believed they were not even able to operate legally without the permission of the sheriff. Okay, so Bundy is a verified, paranoid strain approved nutjob. But why do we know his name? Well, that has to do with the sheer number of similarly paranoid people he attracted to his... cause? Are we really at the point where we're calling, I don't want to pay to graze my cows a cause? Apparently, a lot of people back in 2014 were doing just that. Folks from across the country flocked to his supposedly brave standoff against some very restrained federal agents, dominating a number of news cycles and offering those aforementioned political leaders an opportunity to grandstand about a person who Mr. Potok accurately characterizes as less of a hero and more of a miscreant. And when it came time to finally remedy this ridiculous standoff, things only got worse. Remember how the feds had learned their lessons after Waco? Well, it seems that they forgot them, at least to some extent, in dealing with the Bundys. The government came in, uh, you know, looking like the military, you know, with, with uh, helicopters and dogs and horses and, and heavy weaponry and so on. Uh, and as it turned out, fed into the idea uh, that the government was sort of typically, uh, you know, reacting with this incredible overkill and helped to draw hundreds of people sympathetic to the militia movement uh, to the ranch. Uh, you know, and of course, the the, Bundy, the 2014 Bundy standoff in Nevada, uh, from the government's point of view, was a complete disaster. You know, what what the government ultimately had to do uh, was uh, slink away with its tail between its legs. And uh, because there were no arrests, uh, no prosecutions for almost two years after the 2014 standoff, the radical right in the United States was clearly emboldened in a really dramatic way. And we began to see these kinds of confrontations uh, tick up as a result. We saw similar confrontations in a particular refuge in Utah. Uh, on a couple of other occasions, uh, militiamen came to defend, quote unquote, miners who had beefs with the government for one thing or another. And it ultimately turned into the standoff at the Mallor National Wildlife Refuge uh, in Burns, Oregon. So in the wake of what many on the extremist fringe perceived as the feds walking away with their tails between their legs, the stage was set for still more nonsense. And sure enough, when the opportunity arose to make a deeply stupid stand over a minor conflict, members of the Bundy clan, specifically Cliven's son, Ammon. Cliven? Ammon? Uh, with names like these, junior high must have been a fucking nightmare. 
yeah, okay, they could have used a copy of the baby name book. But regardless, Ammon and a bunch of other ill-informed malcontents flocked to the cause when a couple of Oregon ranchers, Dwight Hammond Jr. and his son Stephen, received surprisingly harsh mandatory prison sentences for two different incidents of setting fires on public land. The reasons for the fires are disputed, but there's no question about two things. The Hammonds had been on combative terms with the BLM for years, and commentators across the political spectrum were surprised at the strong-arm tactics the prosecutors used to ensure these two men received minimum five-year sentences, especially after the trial judge had negotiated a much more lenient solution. Regardless, the Bundys and friends got wind of this story and quickly made a splash, taking over the nearby Malheur Wildlife Sanctuary in Burns, Oregon. Their demands started with the all-powerful county sheriff with a million hit points and maximum charisma using his level 35 magic user constitution powers to create a sanctuary for the Hammonds and prevent the feds from arresting them. Also, they were going to stay indefinitely or until everybody agreed that the refuge could never, ever return to the federal government or some other bullshit that no one in their right mind would ever agree to. It's worth noting that whatever problems the Hammonds had with the government, they don't appear to be crazy. And they didn't ask for, nor did they appreciate, the occupier's deeply stupid form of help. Basically, I think the uh, Maller uh, National Wildlife Refuge occupation was seen as a way of demanding uh, that the federal government, quote unquote, return public lands uh, to the local state or county. You know, I think it's worth saying that uh, these people's idea of who uh, public lands should be controlled by uh, is completely wrong. There, is a whole, there was a whole series uh, of cases in the 1980s uh, in the wake of uh, the Sagebrush Rebellion and the Wise Use Movement uh, that definitively established that, yes, indeed, the federal government constitutionally uh, has the power to steward public lands for the American people. Anyway, the occupiers occupied for a little over a month. During this period, one of their chief spokesmen was Ammon Bundy. The other was a rancher named Lavoy Finnicum. Thank you, Neil. We are joined from the compound now by Eamon Bundy and Lavoy Finnicum. Thank you for joining us this morning. So how does this end? Your brother Ryan Bundy told the Portland Oregonian that you and your group is willing to kill and be killed if necessary. Um, well, I think when, when people are defending their rights, that's always what, what we have to stand on. We have to be willing to say, look, we'll, we'll do what it takes to defend our rights. And if we're not willing to do that, they'll be taken away. And you need to understand that uh, we have no intent of pointing a gun at anybody. But let's be clear here. Who's pointed guns at me? Who's pointed guns at Ammon? They have. Who said that we will shoot you? We never have. They have. When we stood there at Bundy's, they were pointing guns at us and saying that they shoot us. We have no intent of doing that. Or on him later. Anyway, the occupiers held plenty of press conferences, and the 24-hour cable news channels ate it up. As the whole thing got increasingly surreal, the internet started internetting all over everything. For example, when histrionic occupier John Ritzheimer made a plea for food and other supplies, well, this happened. What's going on, everybody? Uh, so we went and picked up some mail that came in from, you know, a lot of the... Uh supporters, but along with that mail, we got a, a, an abundance of the hate mail. This one was really funny, a bag of dicks. Um, so rather than going out and doing good, you know, um, they just spend all their money on hate and hate and hate and hate. So we're going to create a table and we're going to continue to do work and do good for our country. 
Earlier this week, Oregon militia leader John Ritzheimer went on Facebook and posted a video tantrum. Ritzheimer was upset that people had sent the militia sex toys and candies shaped like male genitalia. Ritzheimer pleaded for emergency rations, and instead he and his militia were met with scorn and jokes. His violent hissy fit was met with more pranks and jokes. Max Temkin, the creator of the card game Cards Against Humanity, sent the men a 55-gallon tub of passion natural water-based lube valued at over $1,000. I hope nobody shoots me with a gun, Temkin tweeted after announcing his gift. Ritzheimer has not posted his reaction as yet. Ritzheimer is a former yes, Marine. Yes, in one of its proudest moments, the internet banded together and sent these self-righteous scofflaws dildos. Lots and lots of dildos. And like a 55-gallon barrel of lube. Yeah, it was kind of great. So, nearly a month into the, quote, occupation, the feds were still holding back, creating a perimeter but avoiding the kind of direct armed standoff that had caused them so much trouble with the Elder Bundy in 2014. And perhaps predictably, due to the lack of a direct armed confrontation, the occupiers overplayed their hands, deciding they would simply drive to a planned meeting with a sympathetic sheriff in a nearby county without even acknowledging the federal forces surrounding their occupation. The uh, federal agents paid a lot of attention to and cooperated with the local sheriff of that county and ultimately came up with a very carefully thought out plan to arrest these people at a roadblock in a way uh, that would minimize uh, any kind of bloodshed. You know, of course, it is true that a man named Lavoy Finnegan, a spokesman for uh, the occupiers, was killed, but I think it's absolutely crystal clear, uh, we've seen videos that show this, that Finnicum in fact tried to draw down uh, on officers there and was killed as a result. Now, you know, of course, uh, the militia world is now filled with people, including Finnegan's family, who claim that this was an assassination and so on. But I think nobody who has their head screwed on and looks at those videos uh, believes that for a moment. Just a warning, this audio taken from inside Finnicum's vehicle by one of the other passengers is disturbing. We will not think less of you if you skip forward a few seconds. Okay, so they're shooting. Okay, we're here. Go ahead and shoot me. Stay down. Stay down. Stay down. Stay down. Stay down. Stay down. Damn it. Are they shooting him? Did they shoot him? You asshole. And so the standoff in Oregon, the latest incursion by sovereign nonsense into the lives and news cycles of mainstream Americans, culminated in one death and a slew of arrests. And then, several months later, in a jury's shocking verdict. Uh, the folks and reporters there interviewing Shauna Cox, one of the defendants, she and her colleagues, uh, her, her cohorts rather, found not guilty of conspiracy to impede officers of the United States as well as possession of firearms and dangerous weapons on federal property. Again, not guilty verdicts across the board except for one charge that the jury could not agree on. So, now, what happened let's review. A bunch of angry sovereign jagoffs take over and incidentally wreck the living shit out of a bird sanctuary in an action they claim is designed to help two other ranchers in their struggle with the federal government, even though they had no effect whatsoever on that issue and the ranchers themselves didn't ask for or agree to the help. Then, as one of the occupiers gets shot after essentially begging authorities to shoot him, the others are prosecuted and then the leaders are acquitted before a court of law. What's the moral of this story? 
Well, according to the Sovereigns, you know this one. The federal government continues to run amok. That's right. They've learned nothing. They're still spoiling for a fight, and Mark Potok expects them to be making more headlines in the near future. I mean, I think it is entirely possible that we will see uh, standoffs uh, like those uh, in Nevada and Oregon in the coming months and years. Uh, You know, in our survey uh, of county sheriffs, it really was remarkable uh, to hear how incredibly strong uh, support for uh, not only the Second Amendment, but the kind of most radical interpretation of the Second Amendment was. Enormous numbers, millions of people in the rural West really believe that gun control is not constitutional, that gun control is an attack uh, on their kind of God-given liberties. And I think an enormous number of those people may be willing to engage in really scary activities. Let's hope for the best. I mean, it's not like we just elected a conspiracy theorist as the head of state or anything. Shit. Because there was so much to cover in this episode, we are foregoing our standard letters section just this one time. But we would still love to hear from you. Remember, you can contact us at theparanoidstrainnospaces at gmail.com. It's so easy. Just record a question on your phone, send us the audio. You might hear your own golden voice on this very podcast. Well, not this one, but another one that's a lot like it. I I mean, not exactly like it, but with me narrating and like on another similar conspiracy related subject. Never mind. You get it. You get it. And with that, it's time for our closing segment. And now, ladies and gentlemen, from the four corners of our great land, we present this episode of Profiles in Crazy. You know, it's often been said that you shouldn't speak ill of the dead. So today, we are going to celebrate the life, and especially the literary legacy, of one Lavoie Finnicum, sovereign patriot, Maller Wildlife Standoff spokesperson, man who dared the feds to shoot him, and final resting place of a number of bullets. Finnicum was, for most of his life, a rancher in Arizona, and had apparently never run into trouble with anybody, including the nefarious BLM, until August of 2015, when... After returning from his stint supporting the Bundy Ranch standoff, he suddenly decided to emulate his hero Cliven and stop paying his own grazing fees. The details aren't that important. It's a typical sovereign argument about who, exactly, gets to decide how the law should be interpreted. Hint. According to Finnecombe, it's not the feds, the Supreme Court, or mainstream legal opinion, but it does rhyme with Favor Linicum. Regardless, while he may have been angling for his own Bundy-esque standoff at home, it was preempted when, in December of 2015, he heard the clarion call of the impending Hammond arrests and joined the Bundys and other assorted delusionals in Oregon. He ended up becoming one of the most prominent figures in the Maller occupation, and in numerous interviews made his assessment of the situation and of how he would react to the threat of arrest crystal clear. Let's presume that they're not. Let's presume that if there's not already a warrant out for your arrest, you are breaking the law occupying this federal property. So perhaps at some point there will certainly be a warrant. When that warrant comes down, when that arrest comes, what do you tend to do in response? I have no intention of spending any of my days in a concrete box. So you're prepared to die. Better dead than in a cell. Absolutely. Would you like to be in a cell? Nobody wants to live there live their life in a cell. So, Finnecombe was ready to die and put himself in a position where his death became essentially inevitable. 
And let's not lose sight of the fact that his rash decisions left his 11 kids without a father. But on the bright side, before his death, Lavoy gifted us all with a distillation of his philosophy and his prophetic vision of the future in his only novel, modestly titled, Only by Blood and Suffering, Regaining Lost Freedom. We now present a brief overview of this novel, including dramatic renditions of some of the most moving, evocative passages. The plot centers around the clan of Jake Bonham, a rancher and dedicated family man whose wife has run off to the bright lights of the big city and whose kids have grown up and dispersed from the family ranch. Suddenly, the U.S. faces an apocalyptic scenario. EMPs, or electromagnetic pulse bombs, are detonated over the United States. The grid goes down, order collapses, anarchy almost immediately takes over. Wait, why am I bothering to explain this to you when the novel's profusion of natural, unstilted, internal monologues can do it for me? Take, for example, this, as son Dan recalls his father's words of wisdom. Dan Bonham, when our country gets hit, it will be a massive nuclear first strike by Russia and China. They're not going to waste just a single EMP strike on us, even by proxy of radical Islam. If they were going to seize the economic engines of Europe and Asia, they must first render America inert. They'll use a potent concoction of nuclear missile strikes coordinated between the two countries. They will target most of our military bases and much of the power production in our country. And, of course, they'll throw in several well-spaced EMP. I know at this point you're thinking, Fearful, are you expecting me to believe that this was written by a novice author and dedicated ideologue? I was assuming only the love child of Kissinger and Faulkner could attain this synthesis of realistic foreign policy analysis and limpid prose. I know. I know. But I assure you, it's pure finicum. And by the way, lest you think that there's some element of self-aggrandizement and wish-fulfillment in the fact that this middle-aged rancher and anti-government conspiracy theorist wrote a novel where the middle-aged rancher and anti-government conspiracy theorist is the only person who's right about every single thing that happens when the shit really goes down, man, as well as being the most revered and competent human being that anyone in the novel has ever seen, well, your cynicism disgusts me. As Jake Bonham's son notes, Dad said that when this country got hit, it would be a surprise to all but the real power brokers. I had a hard time believing his conspiracy theories, but not anymore. Perhaps the best proof that Bonham is not Lavoy Finnicum's Tyler Durden comes from the totally dissimilar romantic experiences of each. Finnicum, at his death, had been married for 22 years, while his character Bonham's estranged wife, murdered in the novel's initial spasm of societal breakdown violence, is out of the picture completely when he meets a Navajo woman 15 years his junior. This woman who is definitely not an idealized portrayal of an exotic Native American other, designed to inherently preempt any charges of racism leveled at the rest of the book, can take care of herself. But nevertheless, she is inexorably drawn to the older cowboy. As she scopes him out, he notes, When I was younger, I weighed 170. But over the years of running and lifting weights, I had put on another 15 pounds of solid mass. It was not unnoticed by the Navajo woman. And how does she look? I'm glad you asked. At the age of 32, she looked the same as she did at 22. And the men still sought after her. Why so coy? Well... She knew why she had turned them all away. 
She was looking for a man's man, not a boy in a man's body. Her father had been the role model of the man she desired. See, clear as day. No displaced June-December sexual yearning there. Of course, Finnicum was a dedicated member of the LDS Church, so charged and appreciative glances at physiques are about as hot and heavy as we get. The book only gets truly explicit when it comes to gun porn. I was not a Marine sniper, nor did I have a 338 Lapua or a 50 Cal. The Lapua shot a bullet that weighed over 400 grains, and the 50 Cal was over 700 grains. My 270 was shooting a 130 grain ball, and the bullets for my AR were only 69 grains. The 130 grain 270 bullet, when zeroed at 200 yards, dropped over 20 inches at 400 yards and over 40 inches at 500 yards. At 800 yards, I would be lobbing in the shot. That creaking sound was Tom Clancy's corpse getting wood. Anywho, there's a huge standoff against the forces of evil and some light cannibalism, so we strongly recommend you pick up this book before it ends up on the shortlist for the Man Booker Prize and simply everyone starts talking about it. Okay, so he was a shitty writer, but by all accounts he was a good husband and dad. It's hard to speculate on the combination of ideals, personal experience, and mental state that would drive a father of eleven not only to put himself in danger, but deliberately to court death in the service of a delusion. But what we do know is that there are nearly a dozen more orphans, thanks to Finnicum's paranoid strain. This has been The Paranoid Strain. Special thanks to our wonderful interviewee, Mark Potok, the Militia Watcher. Do yourself a favor and read his and his colleagues' excellent reporting on sovereign citizens, hate groups, and other threats to our nation at the Southern Poverty Law Center's website, splcenter.org. As always, we're grateful for the musical stylings of Daniel Arizona and the Paranoid Strain Orchestra, and the dulcet Northern European interjections of Ms. Dana Unicorn. We also need to thank our magnificent guest narrator, Big Mucho, as well as the dedicated YouTubers who have uploaded so very, very many clips of sovereigns making asses out of themselves. I'm Fearful Jesuit. Thanks for listening. Next month, we finish this series with an in-depth look at the Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs legal theories of sovereign citizens. In the meantime, remember, the world is chaotic, but it's not out to get you. Or at least, not you specifically.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.